Well, brethren, if you would uh, take your Bible again and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to be looking in just a moment at verses 1 to 7. This morning, after our initial consideration of 1 John 4, 8, that God is love, uh, we have begun exploring other attributes of the love of God. And we've moved together from the unconditional love of our Father to the everlasting love of our Father. And this morning, we come to consider the extravagant love of our Father. That extravagant love will be evidenced abundantly to us in this passage about God's commitment to and provision for His people. So we come this morning to a very, very well-known text. It's often quoted. It's a portion of what I like to call the Gospel of Isaiah. That's not original to me, but some of the early church fathers called Isaiah that because it's simply full of Christ and the Gospel call of Jesus. Well, we're going to read the text and then reflect briefly on the context and then we'll get into the sermon itself. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do ask as we consider Your Word that You would help us to understand the things that You have freely given to us. Lord, we we pray specifically for the Holy Spirit to be at work, to enlighten our minds afresh with the knowledge of Christ, to lead us to a deeper knowledge of who You are, our Father, our caretaker, the lover of our souls. Lord, we pray as we see wondrous things that You would lead us not only to believe what You have put before us, but to live as people who believe. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you would, stand please for the reading of God's Word. Again, Isaiah 43 verses 1-7. to seven. <clears throat> But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored And I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created from my glory, whom I formed and made. Well, this is God's holy word, and may He be praised by it. Brethren, please be seated. <clears throat> the book of Isaiah is set in the context of ongoing domestic and international crises. The domestic crisis pertains to the leadership in Judah 
and the growing wickedness of the people. Now Isaiah served under a host of kings in the southern kingdom, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and he saw the onset of evil king Manasseh's reign. In fact, tradition holds that when Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37 speaks of some of the faithful being sawn in two, it's Isaiah being remembered who perhaps was cut in half by wicked king Manasseh. It was a dark season for God's people on the whole. And much of that time in his life, Isaiah preaches of coming judgment. You see, Judah was littered with high places, sacred pillars, and Asherah poles. Now for a brief period, Hezekiah had all these destroyed. We've been seeing about that in 2 Chronicles. But when Manasseh comes to the throne, he put it all right back and then some. And in this period of growing corruption, there were also international crises beginning to loom over God's people. Assyria was a constant threat for many years. They had wiped out the northern kingdom and threatened the southern kingdom. And though the Lord miraculously delivered Judah from Assyrian domination, foolish alliances with Babylon had begun. And it would be through the slow-growing Babylonian empire that the Lord would eventually bring judgment on Judah for her sin and drive them into exile. What's in the face of this coming exile with all the horrors of judgment that Isaiah speaks these words of comfort here in our text, really in the whole section of Isaiah 40-66. to Isaiah is offering comfort to the remnant, to those who have humbled themselves in the face of their own sin and are looking to the Lord. And like so many prophets, Isaiah is chiefly answering questions concerning God's faithfulness to His promises. The question is something like this. How can God's people be sure, in spite of their sin, that there will be a future after the exile? How can they endure the present days of chastening? Because it seems like God doesn't even care about them with all the disaster. So how do they know that God hasn't closed His eyes to His people, that their way isn't hidden from Him? How do they know that God will see and God will take action? Well, during these manifold fears, Isaiah brings words of assurance. Assurance that ultimately will lead us to see the, the great servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will inaugurate a new covenant. The Lord is telling His people that He hasn't forgotten His promise. He hasn't forgotten them at all. He hasn't failed to see their distress. And He hasn't ceased to love a rebellious people. He will act. And in doing so, He will reveal the marvel of His character. Isaiah tells the troubled remnant, do not fear. Why not? Well, four reasons I want to explore with you which is going to reveal the extravagance of God's commitment to His people. So first see with me, why should they not be afraid? Why should we not be afraid? Because your God redeems you. Look at verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, 
for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. While the remnant is experiencing the deep pain of punishment and tempted to think that their sin, which resulted in the exile, has made them lose their identity as the people of God, Isaiah brings a word from the Lord which declares a new action. The God who's revealed Himself to His people as Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, I am who I am, unchangeable in my character, and particularly unchangeable in my steadfast love, I am acting in your distress. And the Lord says, just as He created and formed the world, and particularly how He created and formed Adam with intimacy and care, so He has created and formed a people for Himself. He created Jacob. He formed Israel. And the word formed depicts intimate, painstaking care in shaping the object formed just as the potter intended. Well, could it then be that He who created and formed His elect like a potter formed His masterpiece, that He would now forget them? And the answer is no. Isaiah is saying, the Lord is not blind to your grief. He has not forsaken you. Still your troubled heart, O anxious people. Fear not. Yet why should they not be afraid? Well, the text says, because the Lord is your Redeemer. God has put His name on His people. They are part of His family. The language here echoes a principle of leveret marriage. Maybe you remember the story of Boaz and Ruth. The Lord comes as the next of kin like Boaz did for Ruth. And the Lord, Yahweh, accepts the rights of redemption. Yahweh makes the needs of the people His own. He comes to relieve their distress and He says literally, Mine you are. Or to Me you are. Now, why would the remnant be afraid in the first place? Well, verse 1 signals this new action. And if you look at the different course, it makes us back up. Notice how it says in verse 1, but now. Well, what was going on before this? Well, look back up to Isaiah 42 in verses 18 to 25, and we get a glimpse of who the people are whom the Lord is redeeming. And it is not a pretty picture. Isaiah 42, verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. That's not a good start. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, and or blind as the servant of the Lord? And then verse 20 continues the onslaught. He sees many things, that is, Israel sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. What's the problem with God's people? They are blind and deaf. They are in a spiritual condition whereby they reject the law and they've been judged. And who brought this judgment upon them? Look at verse 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we, note Isaiah includes himself, against whom we have sinned? But even when judgment came, end of verse 25, Israel did not take it to heart. 
In other words, God has brought this severe chastening and they still don't get it. You ever had a child like that? You brought severe chastening and still don't get it? That's God's people. They are deaf, blind, foolish, rebellious, and they do not recognize the weight of their sin. And this is not just the people as a whole. This is even the remnant. The problem with this people is not simply captivity. The exile is not the real issue. That's a symptom. The cause of the exile is the problem. Their sin. And unless there is a means to remove the cause of captivity, the stench of their iniquities, then mere restoration from physical bondage will not accomplish the purpose for which God formed His people. To make Himself known. And yet in an extravagant, downright shocking declaration to this very people, corrupt people we might say, cold-hearted sinners, What does the Lord say He's going to do? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. It should remind you of the sermon you heard just a, I guess it was a week ago, of that love letter God writes to His people. I don't love you because you're pretty. I don't love you because you're smart. I don't love you because there's anything in you worth redeeming. But I've redeemed you. Now, brethren, what does it mean to redeem? Well, it's a willingness to pay the ransom price. It's a readiness to purchase. And the Lord speaks here as if it's already accomplished. I have redeemed you, He says. Well, what redemption is the Lord speaking of here? Is He referring back to the Exodus? When the price consisted in the firstborn of Egypt and the blood of lambs? Or is he referring to some future redemption that is so certain it's spoken of as if it's already accomplished? And I think the answer is yes. The former redemption accomplished in the Exodus foreshadowed a greater redemption, a greater Exodus to come. A redemption not in terms of political liberty, but from the exile caused by sin. You see, God looks at His stubborn people who are bloodied and filthy in the leg irons of sin and He says, redemption is done. I have claimed you for Myself. I will not abandon you because My calling of your souls, My election of you cannot be revoked. Now, what the price will be for redemption is only hinted at later. But already we grasp the depth of God's love here. Because He's saying no price will be too high for Him to show His unfailing covenant faithfulness to His people. He will be extravagant in His covenant affection. Well, Beloved, what I want you to see here is a simple point that you shouldn't be afraid because God redeems sinners. And He doesn't wait for sinners to change as though they need to make the first move toward Him. His redemption isn't conditioned upon their moral change. Though love like this should produce a change in us. It should make us want to love the Lord and have a love that goes on and on and on. But the Lord loved us when we were disgusting, when we had nothing to offer, 
We came with nothing but our sin, and yet He comes to our aid, and He puts His name on us who are deaf and blind and disobedient. This is the marvel of God's grace. Not simply that God redeems, but that He redeems sinners. And what shall we say to this? For the condition of Israel, brethren, I hope you recognize, is our condition. Their bondage is our bondage. We are all ensnared in the shackles of sin, and we have no hope in ourselves. Galatians 3, verse 10, Cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything written in the book of the law. Have you failed in any area? You're cursed. But Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Fear not, the Lord says, for I have redeemed you. If you are here this morning and you're broken over your sin, you're grieving at your own filth, if you're here and you feel abandoned or rejected or miserable, Look to this God who is pleased to rescue those who are pitiful and stuck in the mire. The ruin our sin has caused will not prevail. Brethren, believe and do not fear, for the Lord our God rides the heavens to our help, or more powerfully, He comes down, the Son of God, to become one of us, that He might live as one of us and redeem us from our own mess. Look at the love of God in saving our souls. But not only does your God redeem you, secondly see, your God protects you. The Lord declares, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. How come you won't be overwhelmed and consumed? Verse 3, for I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Here the Lord tells us the consequence of belonging to Him. Preservation. The Lord tells His afflicted people that He will not take away their troubles in this present age. Now that's often what we want, isn't it? Proof of love would be, God, You make all of my troubles to go away. We desire all the difficulties to disappear. The Lord won't do that. He loves you too much to do that because He uses those trials to shape you. But rather, in all of your hardships, they can be endured because of His presence. He abides with us. And right here we are learning that the life of faith is a life of conflict. It's a life of floods and fires and everything in between. So much for the lies out there of the prosperity gospel, which is devilish hogwash. The believing life is a life of trouble. Didn't Jesus say it would be that way? In this world, you will have what? Tribulation. This is how it is for the people of God. However, as we travel down these precarious roads with no power to protect ourselves, we're told no ultimate harm, no soul sinking destruction will befall us. How so? For Yahweh says, I am with you. Brethren, isn't that an extravagant declaration of love? Who are we 
We are sinful creatures. And yet God Almighty will stoop to be with us. Indeed, we deserve overflowing floods and scorching fires. That's the image of covenant curse. But we're not getting what we deserve. And while the flood and the fire may rage on us, they won't overcome us. For the redemption of our God includes His shielding attendance. That is, our covenant Lord doesn't merely act to rescue. He remains committed to us. He doesn't perform one act of love. I redeemed you, but now you've got to figure it out. I, I leave you to fend for yourself. No, He comes to us even when we have made a mess of things. And He walks with us in our affliction. And this assurance of the Lord's presence is the very heart of the covenant. When God promises to be our God and we His people, He's promising to be with us. You see, a change in our circumstance is not going to be the answer to our fearful condition. We don't need a new location to escape fear. You can go to the beach if you like the beach and go to the mountains if you like the mountains, but the trouble is you take you with you. And it's not a means of escape. You could get out of your situation and you'll find that you're still you in the new situation. So more trouble will come. But the Lord is saying, I will be with you. Brethren, isn't that the comfort that Joseph knew in all of his distress? When he was sold by his brothers to Midianite traders and then to Potiphar, what sustained Joseph in the trial? Genesis 39.2 The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. It wasn't Joseph's native ability that earned him favor in Potiphar's eyes. Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him. Genesis 39.3 And that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Then when Joseph faces temptation from Potiphar's wife, it wasn't his innate strength that enabled him to resist her advances. It was because the Lord was with him. And when he was in prison for alleged rape, again in jail, what does Moses say about Joseph's state? The Lord was with Joseph and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Amidst all the dark providences that came his way, Four times, Moses tells you in that chapter, the Lord was with him. Thus, he persevered. We could look at it the same way if we consider the lives of Moses or Joshua or Samuel or David. And yet, if we think about it, here are men whose sin is written down for us to see in the Word, and yet the Lord was still with them. And my friends in Christ, the Lord hasn't changed. Therefore, He will be with us too. Why will He be with us? Notice the reason He gives. Verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now listen to that language. I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, as much as Israel is the Lord's, we belong to Him. He said, mine you are. Well, the Lord is ours. The Lord has given Himself to us in His covenant. It's as though we possess God. The Lord has redeemed us. 
He's committed Himself to us and He always stands by us. That's what He's saying here. And He gives names here indicating His special significance to His people. He is the Lord. Again, Yahweh, your God. The Lord is the name revealed in the Exodus. He's a God who sees and hears our groaning and is faithful to His promises. He's the Holy One of Israel. A God who puts His name on us and vindicates us by exercising His power to save. And He is our Savior. Now Israel could look back and see the Lord who saved them by crushing Egypt. He could see the Lord saving them by seeing an angel to strike down 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Surely that proves the Lord is our Savior. Well, how much more is this the case for us? Because brethren, we have seen His faithfulness displayed, His holiness vindicated, and His saving power shown in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We did nothing, and Jesus saved us. He rescued us, and He gave us the same promise Isaiah is giving here. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Whatever trial you face, even if it's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with you. Therefore, you don't need to abandon hope and despair in your pain, in your sickness, in your weariness, in your affliction. If you believe in Christ, no power, not even the mighty torrent of death itself, will overflow your head and sink you into the pit. Extravagant loyalty with extravagant might holds you. And then thirdly, why should you not fear? Because your God loves you. Verse 3, the Lord says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Now, it's already mentioned redemption is costly. But when God announces that He's our Redeemer, He's telling us no cost is too high. He will go to any length to find a substitute. And that substitute in the Exodus was Egypt. The Lord says, I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. That's the language of substitution. Now, Cush and Seba are the lower portions of Egypt in the ancient world. So the whole breadth of the land is given in the place of Israel. They're destroyed as the waters came crashing down and Israel is saved to worship. Likewise, when Assyria decimated the northern kingdom, Later, Sennacherib set his eyes to strike down Judah in the days of Hezekiah. But at just that time, Egypt with Ethiopia, which is Cush, and Seba, marched out against Sennacherib and were destroyed. Here again, God gave nations in the place of His people. They paid the price and His people were spared. But why did the Lord do this? Why would the Lord offer a substitute for His people? Well, He tells us, verse 4, Because you are precious in My eyes and honored, and I love you. You ever wanted to hear God tell you, I love you? It's right here. What incredible language this is, brethren. This is the language of a bridegroom looking upon his bride and saying, In My eyes you 
are precious. You are a treasure, a costly jewel upon whom my eyes delight to gaze. That's what the Lord's people are in His sight. The Lord has placed a particular value upon them. But God tells His people they are more than just precious to Him. They are honored. That word literally means weighty. It's the word used for the glory of God. Now, He alone is most glorious. He's the weightiest being in the universe. But when this verb is used describing someone, it figuratively means they are honorable or worthy of respect. God looks upon His people, and what are we again? Blind, deaf, rebellious, foolish, disobedient, and He yet says, you are worthy. You have dignity. I see you with delight. Now, He couldn't be looking upon our merits to make such a declaration. He would have to be looking upon someone in our place. More on that in a second. But then comes the final reason for redemption, because I love you. God told the, re- the Israel the reason He set His affection on their fathers and loved them was because He loved them. I love you because I love you. He's simply deciding in His good pleasure to set His love upon a people. And that love, that real abiding affection, was the reason for redeeming mercy. The Lord would give up anything for them. Yet, how would this be of comfort in the present situation when Israel stands on the brink of exile? You've got to put yourself in their shoes. Babylon is coming to lay waste the city, to destroy the temple, to drag the remnant away. Does God care about them now? Well, the Lord answers with a resounding yes. These words bring consolation to Israel as they face the exile. My love to you hasn't stopped. And brethren, they bring even more consolation to us in Christ because these truths, precious, honored, and loved, are an abiding reality. The tense in the original language indicates that all of this stuff was in the past and continues into the present. In other words, God hasn't relegated His people in past days to be precious, honored, and loved. They continue to be precious, honored, and loved. Therefore, what does God say He will do? Verse 4 again, Because you are precious in My eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. I've given substitutes in the past. I'm going to give substitutes in the future. I will continue to spare my people. But surely, surely, beloved, this points to what Isaiah will say just a few chapters in the future. Isaiah 53, explaining to us just how great the concept of substitution is. The Lord will be pleased, out of love, to give His servant like a lamb as a substitute. And He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. The chastening that brings us peace fell on Him and by His wounds we are healed. It will not be until the prophetic word from the angel Gabriel comes about 700 years later 
that light is shed on what exactly this means here in Isaiah 43. But Gabriel will tell Joseph concerning his pregnant betrothed that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For what will he do? He will save his people from their sins. What will that mean? Jesus later explains, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom, a substitute that redeems for many. Jesus told them at the the Last Supper with His disciples, drink of this cup, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the substitute. So looking upon His own people as His treasure, as His honored possession, and loving them, the Father would visit justice for our crimes on His Son. And this is what He did. The Father's love is demonstrated in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Brethren, we're blind, we're dumb, we're foolish, we're blatant rebellious in ourselves. But our God has taken action. And no, he's not a bridegroom under a delusion. Have you, have you ever met such a sap who doesn't see who his wife really is? That's not what God is saying. I know who you are. You are sinful. You are enemies. You are hostile to me. You've rejected me over and over and over again. But I still love you. And I will demonstrate love to you in this way. I will give my son for you. Why does God love us? Well, He loves us because we're in Christ. Why did He place us in Christ? He did it because He loved us. He chose to. How amazing is this? What what effect should such a truth have upon your soul that you are precious, honored, and loved by God? How do you treasure your God who treasures you like this, how can you even begin to honor Him? Surely it's by overflowing with thankfulness and living a life of obedience. Do you remember the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Isaac Watts is contemplating the cross and he says, Thus might I hide my blushing face while His dear cross appears dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes with tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. How should you respond to love like this? By loving the Lord back. But brethren, there's one more reason not to fear we see in verses 5-7. to It's because your God gathers you. The Lord tells His people again as an assurance, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed and made, Now, though the world might look at God's fledgling people and say they're hopelessly scattered, they're cast off in the exile. No, God's presence guarantees our future hope. If God is for us, and He is for those whom He has foreknown, predestined, called in Christ, then He can draw us back together again. 
Well, in these verses, the scope of gathering goes beyond the extent of Babylonian exile, though that's the immediate context. In fact, this gives us another clue that what God is promising here is something bigger than release from a physical captivity. To the farthest ends of the four corners of the earth, God will look and command that His people be released. None shall hold them back from His command. Do you see the power He has to draw all of His people to Himself? Everyone called by His name will fulfill the purpose He has for them. They will be gathered. Now can you imagine the unspeakable comfort this would be to these people facing exile? It's hard to put ourselves in their shoes, but fathers and mothers are going to be separated from their sons and daughters. You remember in the first deportation when Babylon comes to initially attack in 605, they take all the bright young lads off to Babylon to re-educate them in the ways of Babylon. Imagine your 10 to 12 year old son being ripped away from you and dragged off to Babylon. That's the state of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are their Hebrew names. I think that's what they want us to know them by. Not the other names in face of the Babylonian gods. But can you, can you fathom the sorrow of your boys or your girls being torn away from you? And yet the Lord is saying, I will gather them. Not a son or a daughter will be left behind. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Now, when Israel was first attacked with a deportation, it was 605 B.C., and when the exile's over and the exiles get to go home, it's 538 B.C. It's roughly 70 years. Do you think those fathers and mothers would live that long to see their children come back to them? No. No, they're not going to see it. Therefore, this gathering has to describe something much greater and extravagant. Indeed, brethren, the gathering looks to the day when all of God's people will be called to Him on the last day. When Jesus is returning and He tells His disciples on the Mount of Olives in view of that day that the people of God will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And get this, they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. It will not be like it was for the exiles with many years having gone by. No, not one here will be missing. Everyone called by His name, every son and daughter of God, no matter what circumstances they face in life, will be there. Thus, the Word says, do not fear. I have the power to bring my people home, to fix everything that was broken. Isn't that extravagant love? Brother, what can we say to this? How shall we respond in view of this? Shouldn't this stir our joy and give us confidence to live for Christ? Some of us this year have experienced our own loved ones being ripped from us by the King of Terror's death. And yet the Lord is saying, I will gather them and you will be with them. And more than that, you will be with me forever. Why am I doing this? Because I love you. 
may such love drive us even more to worship the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at Your love. It is truly beyond all description. We thank You, O Lord, for these sweet and precious promises that we have seen fulfilled in Christ, that He has redeemed us, and yet in view of the redemption Christ has brought, Lord, we know that that means a future day shall come when King Jesus shall return and the full evidence of love shall be visited upon us when we are raised bodily and in the presence of Christ and all of the saints of God forever and ever. Make us long for that day. Until that day comes, Lord, may our anxious souls be comforted in the present, that Your love for us remains, that Your presence is always with us, and You will never fail us. And we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.